You're listening to Finding Your Genius Zone with Dirk Novell. With the help of successful individuals across industries, Dirk breaks down the unknown parts of every vocation while highlighting the importance of finding a career where you can leverage your natural skills, passions, and interests. Now here's your host, Dirk Novell. Hey everybody, welcome to my podcast. This is Dirk Novell, and on with me is Johan Liedgren. And Johan is a... Um, He's, he's one of those guys that came into my life when I was in technology and right away, like something was unique about Johan and he's super humble, but he was very impressive to me. He was um, a, a guy that had just come out of 10 years at Microsoft, but he was in a very creative um, company that I think Honkworm, if I remember his name, but he did some work for me when I was at broadcast.com and he just was one of those guys that I wanted to stay in touch with and, you know, I consider him a friend. And so over the years, I've followed Johan. I mean, super off the charts, bright. But what's really interesting about Johan is the career path that he's he's jumped around in different fields. And right now, I'm going to let him articulate what it is he does. But he's in the film industry. And I feel like when we talk about Genius Zone or people in their flow, Johan depicts that in a big way. So anyhow, welcome to the show, Johan. Thank you, Dirk. Appreciate it. I appreciate it. Why don't you, in your own words, just kind of organically talk about what it is you do right now and how you would, if somebody sat next to you on a plane, how would you describe it? I'm probably on the plane. I probably stay quiet and stay in my book, but fair enough. I, I, I get the question. Um, I, right now I divide my life up into a few different sections. One is indeed, like you say, writing and filmmaking. And those are truly independent films, which means that I have full control over the production, I have full control of the casting and the ownership and the distribution that happens afterwards. They're drama films, so I'm not producing them out of Hollywood. I don't have to spend time in Hollywood convincing middle managers in bad suits what needs to get done. I can just go do it. Um, And if you keep budgets, which I do, at a reasonable level, there are other ways to get those funded and done and out. And after they're done and up on the usual platforms like an iTunes and an Amazon and a Google Vimeo, um, it's all about how well are they doing, how well are they doing at the at the film festivals and that kind of thing. So that's one part of my life, which is the filmmaking. And that's a artistic endeavor that I've been at for 15 years or something like that. Love it. I, however, am not the, the full-on starving artist. I do need my business fix in all of this. So I still stay in consulting gigs. The management consultancy or the fixing of companies I have tried to steer away from. I am less interested in fixing someone else's company. I am more interested in making sure that products and experiences are done in a meaningful way. and perhaps a big statement, but I, I always thought at some point in my life, my artistic sort of career and the, the business career would overlap. And I could never quite figure out how those two would do it. But if you start digging deeper on the core practices of a business, what experiences and what products do you actually produce and why? you very quickly get back into the same questions that you have to deal with a film, what makes it good, what makes it relevant and all of those things. So I, my consulting the last 10 years has primarily been to help companies find their way through some narrative arc where the products that they make provide meaningful and deep experiences for, for their customers or for their clients. And when you start digging into that zone and saying, okay, what is it that makes them, what, what is it that makes an experience meaningful or rich or perhaps even so profound that it will transform you or change you as a human being, or at least challenge how you look at yourself and your role in the world, how you look at others. Um, if you get into that type of uh, research and digging deep, which I have done in the last seven years, it's a fascinating field. And you get to some of those terms and some of those words that you used in the introduction, flow, 
meaning, um, um, transformation, those type of things. You can design for that. You can help company create products that actually have a direction and a purpose and not just produce whatever people want. That is never a good way to go. Um, so if you take a step back and think about my history, I, I'm born and raised in Sweden. I spent my first 25 years there, very quickly got into management consultancy and had a tiny little company in Sweden as my basically my first client. It was called Microsoft. I worked with those guys. I then helped them set up the European headquarters in Paris for about three years, came to the US, and I spent God knows how many years here in the US since. I'm not a corporate animal. I just don't have that in. I don't enjoy the politics of it. I don't enjoy the size of it. But remember back then, Microsoft was not operating as a big company. Many of the European countries were run by one guy out of a garage. And I loved that part of it. Exhausting, but lovable. Uh, when I came to the US, it was just too big for me and came out, decided I wanted to go back into filmmaking and or writing and started startups based on that. And then after about 15 different startups, I pared down the speed of them and my involvement in them as an advisor or board member or chairman or founder or CEO, I've done all of those. And instead went back to more of the core values of writing and helping companies with the more, uh, what I think are the more important things than how much money do we make next quarter. So, uh, you know, as you were talking about your consulting, is it possible just, I'm curious, like, an example of a project not to get confidential but like you have this background very creative background you have a microsoft background but i would assume you're fairly selective in the projects you take on but can you give us an example of what one of those might look like yeah i mean you are as selective as you can be i think you're fully respond and actually let's stay on that topic before i answer it specifically and i i will try to do that I, I do believe that even as a consultant or as a designer or whatever you are at a company, you are fully responsible for the time that you put into that endeavor. If it is a product that is a bad thing for the world or a bad thing for the environment or a bad thing for people, you pick whatever your values are. I'm, I'm not second guessing that, but you are responsible. Anyone who says that I had to do that because I just needed to make payroll or I just needed to pay the mortgage, it is kind of like just following orders. So I have much less patience with that opportunistic uh, approach to corporations. And it is especially important as you get into the big tech giants. So yes, I have been very careful with it. I also still need to, my, I have four children, they need shoes, <laughs> right? Like everyone else. But you have to be careful with that. And yes, you are responsible, even if you're in a money pinch. Um, a good example, what I have worked on lately is something that you and I are doing right now. There is a conversation between Johan and Dirk. Uh, Zoom, Teams, all of those are not a good way to do that. I can't fully read your body language. There is latency when we talk, which puts distance between us. Zoom to be really crude about it, will most likely make the interaction and the connection between two people less than if you took a regular intimate phone call, just two people. And if you start adding another eight people to this conversation, which many corporate meetings would entail, it is a disaster. You're looking at damp-sized little images of people and your brain doing the um, the earnest thing, trying to understand who that person is, trying to figure out where they're coming from and what they're thinking and trying to be empathetic about how do we, how do we create a relationship? It just doesn't stand a chance. And so your brain is just basically working overtime and, and burning hot. That is the Zoom burnout and that is the remote sort of burnout. I really wanted to take a close look at that and deconstruct somehow how a good conversation between two people at a restaurant works. What are the dynamics that are in play when you and I sit at that restaurant 
And it's sort of like the rest of the world just falls to the wayside and it's just you and I, and I pay full attention to you. Why can't we do it here in the same way? Doing that, there are ways to reconstruct that in a digital mediation. So that it's not an impossible problem to solve. So I've spent a lot of time in the last seven, eight years to really look closely at how we can solve that. I've built a bunch of different products in that field together with some of the big tech companies. And that's probably in the, in, from a consulting perspective, been one of the most rewarding things that I have done. Love that. And again, when you start looking at it and looking at that as a journey from the beginning of our call to the end of the call and what makes that meaningful, you are back into filmmaking in some shape or form again. So as far as your time spent, is it like a 50-50 thing, like 50% consulting, 50% filmmaking? It doesn't really work like that in reality, but I try not to take on projects that require, say, six or 12 months of 100% of my time. I still need time to keep the writing up. However, if you go do make a film, that for those two, three weeks of, 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 of uh, being on a set, you need to be there. You need to be present fully for that. You need to take that time off. But otherwise, it's yes, perhaps 50-50 over a two-year span on an average, but it's never 50-50 in reality. There is no way to be that disciplined, I think. I think what's interesting about it, though, just recognizing the fact that you're in a role that allows freedom to pursue the filmmaking. And so for me, like I'm thinking about a 25-year-old kid coming out of college or whatever that's mm -hmm. interested in your profession. And I think the things that people don't think about is freedom and flexibility and the ability to do both. And so I think it's great mm -hmm. you're kind of proving or showing an example of being able to do that. On the filmmaking, I'm just curious because I'm not for in that. The dirt, let's, let's stay on that for a second. So when you say that freedom, that might be interpreted as you go make a bunch of money somewhere and then you have that freedom to do it. I completely did. And I'm not saying you say yep. that, but just to make sure that we don't give that impression. I don't think that's how it works. Okay. I still need to work. I always want it to work. I think you have to start with the activities that are important to you and what makes an impact in the world. I'm not saying do whatever you love and then somehow things are gonna get solved. I don't think it works like that. But pick something that makes a difference, that makes a good and solid difference and do that and figure out how you're gonna make money on it. So I don't think you get freedom. I don't think that's a, you, you claw out freedom. Anyone who has kids knows that you claw out time. Anyone who's been married knows that there are certain things you have to do to take care of the bigger group, which is your family. And there are certain things you have to do to take care of yourself in the same mix. It's not something that's given to you or something that you somehow take a bunch of crap jobs for 15 years and then somehow you're free. It's, that's not how, it's gonna be the opposite. No, fair enough. I think I'm glad you spoke up. I was going to go a different direction, but I want to, I don't want to leave. I don't know how to articulate this, Johan, but I'll just ask it the best way I can. I'm wondering, mm -hmm. like, you're super off the charts intelligent. I've always, you know, I, I feel like you're two steps ahead of me <laughs> every time we've had a conversation. But so my question is about culture and you mm -hmm. being from Sweden. Like, I'm curious, like, if the mindset around careers is different, like, in Sweden, do you feel like, you know, like my dad was all about just get a job. It's not supposed to be fun. It's work. Mm -hmm. Stop trying to like make, you know, make it more than it is. Is there something that's unique about our culture versus say Swedish or European culture on how people- I, 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 be, I believe that's true. I think it is perhaps not in the way that, that you framed it. Um, and again, I want to say, I don't think the answer to someone who's 25 or 35 or 45 or 55 or 65 or 75 trying to figure out what to do, this is a continuous process. At least it's been that for me. I'm still not sure what I'll do in 10 years exactly. I'm fine with that. You got to have to roll with that uncertainty somehow. And I don't think the answer, as I said before, is to 
go do something you love and then everything just falls into place. I don't believe it. I think do something that is meaningful and things might fall into place. And if they don't, then work harder at it. So I'm, I don't want to portray that there is a naive belief that somehow you do the right thing and the world just kind of, you know, backs you up. I don't think it works like that. You're going to have to figure it out. Get yeah. Man up and sort of level up and look at this and just go do it or woman up, whatever. Um, <clears throat> the, the question about the difference between Sweden and the U.S. for it, because those I know, um, is profound, but not in that way. I think if you look at Sweden, it's a country that where 80% of the people work in large entities and 20% work in smaller entities like five and under. It is the very opposite in the US. So that will tell you that the structures or the top heavy structure, what we believe systems do for us is very different. I was never feeling at home in the Swedish culture. Another thing that was important because it's a very small country, it's eight, 10 million people, you likely, if you stay in Sweden, grow up, work, live, get married, all of that stuff in the same group of friends. So you might have the same friends for 40 years that you also went to kindergarten with. Why is that relevant? It's relevant because I believe that that has to do with risk aversion. So whereas in the US and perhaps to the, as, you know, to the level that it's a fault of the US culture, you just do something and then it doesn't work out or you piss people off and then you go to you know another city and you start over again and that's kind of okay. As long as you're good looking and have money, no one really seems to care. However, if you're in Sweden where everyone knows you and have known you and will continue to know you, the tolerance for mistakes or missteps, it's way lower. I saw that because I came out of Microsoft right as the first dot-com boom started. And I found myself very much at home here. It was like the 60s. It was our Woodstock. Everyone was trying to change the world for the better. Money was not the thing back then. We were trying to change the world. It was exciting. It was big. Everything was possible. It was a clean slate. And many of these companies did some, some extraordinary things here in the US. And then they looked at a country like Sweden, where everyone was just so hesitant about doing things that they had their lunch eaten over and over and over by American, by American companies or startups. Uh, I think that was the biggest difference. I think that has changed today. So if you compare it to 25 years ago, um, but it is still part of that culture. So uh, this is fascinating to me. Would, would you, would, would you call that playing it safe or is that not the right way to, to articulate that or describe that? Uh, I think it's opportunistic. If your primary objective is to make sure that your friends still like you and that you're in good standing, you will make different decisions to make that company or that effort or that venture the best that it can be. Because some decisions just takes a lot of risk if you want to do it. And so if you reverse to that, it would be a different decision tree. So when you came to the United States, was it right to Seattle? It was, so I went from Stockholm, three years in Paris and from Paris direct to state of Washington, Seattle, correct? And, and how quickly was the, um, was it, oh, this is awesome, I love it here, or did it take a while? I mean, was it a, no, what was it, the experience? It takes a while, Ameri it, it takes a while. I'm not even sure that this, no country is perfect. This is home for me. I've raised kids here. Um, but I don't believe that any country is, is, as I said, is perfect. I still go back to Sweden all the time, and I love that. Would I move back? No. Would I move back to Paris? Perhaps some point in time. Do I miss Europe? Absolutely. I've done a lot of travels to Italy lately and other countries in Europe to to further my research and to work with teach and lecture and, and further the research on presence and remote presence flow, all the words that you used before. Um, and the best people just happen to be in Milan. So I'll go over there. I've been there four times this last 12 months, I think. 
and love it. Do I want to move there? I don't think so. I still got kids back at the house. So it's, it's, no, you don't do that. You have all the options. Just move if you can, travel if you can, and but more importantly, do the work that you're that is important to you. So I'd like to get back. Thank you, by the way. This is great. I'd like to get kind of into the the filmmaking side of it, and I'm just going to mm -hmm. ask my questions, and you'll probably uncover more meaning behind my question go any direction you want but i had a uh, a guest on the other day who's trying to break into filmmaking lives down in la but one of the things you said that stuck out as far as you avoid down to the hollywood like there's a um there's there's some feelings you have about that culture down there what i guess can you elaborate on i mean is it the is it the BS politics of just how it works? Like, does it take away from the realness and authenticity of what you're trying to do? Like, what is it about the avoidance of Hollywood? You know, why are you doing it the way you're doing it? So I used to have a office for, I think for four years down on, on Melrose and Doheny. So I, I know LA, I spent a good chunk of time there um, I've been, I had a, I had a standing room for a while at the Chateau Marmont. I, I get that part of LA and I get Hollywood. What was frustrating to me was that it, it always became a question of, for most people of their own careers of money and of entertainment. And if you start making a distinction between the goals of entertainment and the goals of art or the goals of storytelling. Uh, you're very quickly finding yourself spending all of your time, again, back to what I said before, convincing high-level managers or worst case, middle-level managers in, in horrible suits that just want to further their own career and be as risk-averse as possible that what you're trying to do makes sense. And you're much better off at that point to stay out of that machinery and just go do it yourself. Pare down... The, if you want to be a famous Hollywood producer or actor, you got to stay in that system. I never had those ambitions. I wanted to make films. I wanted to make my films. Can we talk about like what you gravitate towards? Like there's something inside you that translates to a specific type of film. Is it drama? I mean, is there, is it film a film to you or is there something uh, that, is there a story that you consistently try to tell in your films? I mean, is there consistency? Is there something about the uniqueness of Johan's films that's different from other yeah, films? I, I do believe, I, well, I think the audience will eventually have to be the, 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 the judge of that. And I do truly in my heart believe that as a filmmaker or writer or a painter or you photographer, and pick your art, podcaster, you pick your art, you really don't make the whole film yourself. It's sort of like you put these suggested, interesting little crumbs that people can't resist to go look at. And you do that in a certain sequence. And if you do that right, they will create their own story based on those breadcrumbs that you put out into the darkness somewhere. And if they feel like this leads somewhere that's interesting to them, then they'll go with you. They'll see the full film. And they do that not because they think you're right and have all the answers, but because they can project themselves into that film. So if you think about filmmaking that way, as opposed to entertainment, which is basically spoon-fed to an audience, and it's not entertainment, if you're so challenged by and start thinking about who you are and what the world is and the foundational aspects of the universe, to get as big as we possibly can, that's not entertainment. That scares people. So you have to find a balance here that, that works for you. I happen to gravitate far off to the, let's create something that is challenging and is interesting. And I also have to do with within the budget parameters that making films on your own requires. I don't have $100 million. I have one. So those are the difference. So can you just walk me through, I know it's hard to, there's a lot of steps probably involved, but does it start with an idea and you write it down and you work with it? Mm -hmm. I mean, what's, how does this born into from A to Z? I mean, for someone who's I'm a, interested. I'm a, I'm a, yeah, I'm a writer at heart. Yeah. So I will write the story. I will write it out so I can see it. And the way that I think about writing, my 
prose was never good enough to be a novelist. English was my second language. Sweden or Swedish is now my third language. I don't really have a first first language. Love, maybe something like that. But uh, when I make a film or I write a film, writing a film suited me because no one really reads the script except the actors and the director, which is me. So the benefit I was of that approach was that I could picture the film in my head, put it on paper for myself, not for someone in Hollywood, but for myself, and then I could go do that. So it became a very efficient process where nothing really got lost between the page and the execution and the edit and the scoring and the color correction and all of those millions of decisions that happens from when you go, I think I see this film, this makes sense. I need to go make this till it ends up on someone's laptop or television or at a film festival somewhere, who knows where in the world. <clears throat> so is that a, is that a, I mean, I hate to ask, is that a year long process? Could that be five years to it's, create? I don't think it's five, for me, it's not five years. I don't have that patience or that much time. You write it, it takes three, four months. You make it six months later. It's the casting process and the rehearsal process is very important to me. So about a year and a half, something like that is probably a good average. And how would you define success? Like, I mean, is it just doing it and, or is it based off people liking it? Like what, what, what makes you feel proud of your work? I think the one thing that I always do with all of my feature films is that I would take them out to festivals and I would sit in the audience at festivals. So people who love film, who are there for the right reasons and just feel what that's like. And you hear, then there is always the Q and A and the discussions with the director or writer after, which is me. I love that direct feedback, but there is nothing more terrifying than to sit in the audience as an anonymous audience member when the house light starts to dim and your own film that you've seen a million times before come on. And yet, every single time, it surprises you how the energy in the room shifts with those that edit point you were agonizing over or that score you made, the joke that you thought that no one was gonna get because it was too highbrow or too deep or whatever. And it just, it hits. So I love that. The other part is you, you don't make a film for one person. I don't make a film just for me. I, you hope that it's gonna get out there. So I've chosen to put them up on very public platforms like iTunes and Amazon and Google and Vimeo. And so they're easy to find and easy to get to. Um, so I, I obviously see from the stats how many people see the films and what the arc of that experience is. Have you so ever that been? Is the, that, that is the reward of the whole thing. Have you ever been in a movie theater when the energy wasn't what you wanted? And, and if so, I'm just curious how you reacted to that. There, um, I think there's been many times where it's taken a while for the film to find its audience. And usually what it's been for, at least for the first two films that I did, they found an audience abroad deeper and wider way before they found an audience in the US. So I just think that the US has a system and a machinery that's set up for the, the blockbusters and the Netflix and the, you know the Amazon and Prime and all of that stuff. And um, whereas Europe still in a resilient, proud way, just sort of seeks out the different in a different way. It's a different thing. It's a different theater structure. Yeah. And um, so it, it might take a little longer for it to get its audience and find its referrals here in the U.S. And I'll, I'll ask this again. I don't know how to ask it other than the way I am, but you're, you know, I've watched your, I've seen your post and when you're, you know, I love movies, but when I hear you and read your words, sometimes I get lost because it's so deep and it's like an intelligence, you know, a, a lens that I don't see through. So I, your, your movies, I'm, I'm guessing are very intelligent. You talked about people getting the comedy or not getting it. Is that something you strive for? Are you trying to, I don't want to say trick people. Are you trying to like get so subtly intelligent? I mean, is that, is that, part of maybe not yours, but like 
does that go into your writing where you want to be like make people think in ways they've never thought before? It, the answer is a resounding yes to that question. Um, but I do think you have to look at it based on what we talked about before is that you as a filmmaker only make half of the film. The rest is made in the imagination or the imaginary forces at play in your audience. And if you forget that, you start to get preachy. You start to get prescriptive in how you do it. That will kill your film and the actual engagement I think you're you're looking for. So back to your question, um, is it is it highbrow on purpose or deep on purpose? Not really, but that is also my voice. It's just, I don't think it's smart. I don't think it's more intelligent than other stuff. And there's been plenty of, of complaints that they are too highbrow or they're not basic or entertaining enough in the traditional sense. Whereas other people would say, oh my God, like I finally found a film that there was enough fiber in this to keep me going through the thing because I've seen the other stuff. This is new. This is this is fresh. And I do think I always come into, and I think there are many other filmmakers there with me, if you don't come into a film project or a venture or a business venture and want to change something that is a status quo today, you should get out. Then there is plenty of machinery that you can go work for and just pick one that is not a terrible machine and that's fine. But if you're gonna go do something on your own, again, a startup or a film or a book, whatever that is, or a podcast, make sure you understand what it is that you don't like about that status quo and change that. So you have to challenge. It's part of your charter, I believe, when you venture in that direction. Yeah. And I, you know, what I love about this podcast so far is I think I've thrown some things out and you're not shy to like counter and, and not challenge me, but I'm going to say something. Mm -hmm. I have a feeling you might challenge me again, but like mm -hmm. my why on this podcast, this is not what I do. You know, I I'm still in real mm -hmm. estate lending, you know, I work with you. I mean, that's what I do. That's how I pay the bills. Um, mm -hmm. but like, I don't like the way I don't like this, I don't like how people choose careers. I feel like there's a lot of people that are in careers where they don't like it. And there's some people who don't give a, you know, they don't care what they do. They just want mm -hmm. their three weeks to go fishing. You know, it doesn't, but some mm -hmm. people, I think when I see people in their flow and I definitely think you're in your flow, I see people more joyful, happier. They're better around their kids. They're better around their spouse or their partner. Like I want to shift the way people choose their careers. And I get that sometimes you got to live life like mm -hmm. dating. You got to get out there and you got to experience mm -hmm. what you like. But I also think people need to do a better job of, of taking inventory of how they're different, like, you know, their, their passions, their skills, and try to align that in your life work. Do you agree? I mean, you have four kids. I don't know what your advice was to them, but is your, is your advice, you know, just get out there and you'll figure it out? Or do you think there's any um, room for really investigating the uniqueness of who you are and trying to choose accordingly? I think you do have to stay with the kids for a second because that's obviously near and dear to all of our hearts. You have to do that investigation. I don't think that your role as a father or my role as a father is prescriptive. They would have to go out and do it in their own way. And as frustrating or as mysterious as your children are when they start to move out and create their own careers or go to high school or whatever they're, you know, what they choose, go to college, whatever they choose to do, they have to do it on their own terms. And I think just supporting that is the right way to do. And I don't think that a grown person, you yourself, your colleagues, your friends, whatever people you talk to, they kind of have to do the same. The, the, the problem is that many haven't really given it much thought or reflection. They haven't thought about who they are. They haven't really traveled. They haven't got out of that predictable machinery. And it's really hard to do unless you take the step out. So you have to get outside of that I don't want to call it comfort zone, but it, this is a constant investigation into who you are and what makes sense for you. So back to your core, what seems to be your core question here, which is, what do you do? You choose something that makes you happy or give you the flow, 
I think those are tricky words because it sounds like, again, just pick something you love and then things are going to work out. I fundamentally disagree with that. I do think, think about what matters to you and what you might be really good at and then do it for real without all the hesitation that comes with working inside someone else's system or someone else's approval or someone else's et cetera, et cetera. You have to go do your own thing. And when you do, when it's actually dirt, I think at that point, everyone can hear the difference and mm. then we sign up. So I would say, go find that voice, go find. If there is something you want to say, Dirk, well, be clear about what this, and then just tell us, tell us all and say it loudly, <laughs> say, it, say it bravely, get out there. And that takes, that's one shape for you, one form for you, one for some other person. And some people that might be, I know this is going to sound like they're slacking off. That might be, they need to go fishing for two years. That's fine. I don't know how they come back. I don't know how they share that. Maybe then, then they would be able to tell their kids how to do things right. I don't think we should be judgmental about that process. People do it in different ways. And some of those processes, some of that growing up and some of that soul searching, it's messy. It should be messy. This is not a clean, simple process. This is not a formula. You got to have to figure out your own questions. That's the beauty of it. That's the, and that's the real stuff to me. That's brilliant. I mean, that's brilliant. I really, I love what you just said. Uh, you've said machinery a, a couple of times. Is mm. that how, I mean, I, I have a feeling, I mean, I have an idea what you mean by that, but is that just the, society and the subconscious like bend the knee to like what's status quo? Um, I do think that machinery and status quo are closely related. It, it, it's, a, it's a bigger discussion, but if you think about a big tech company, for example, that we, you, both you and I see so much of in many different ways, they are based on size and scale and growth. That's just how they are and how they work, which means that they have to cater to a large audience. And for that to do that properly, they have to treat that audience in some shape or form as rather average or the same. So a lot of the efforts go into what do people want, not what do they need, but what do they want? How can we sell this to many people and keep the cost down and all of that good stuff? Um, and that then becomes more of a transactional relationship with your clients and your customers. So you have companies like an Amazon who would say, we are, we are very customer focused. And you think about that and you go like, that's a customer focus. It's not a person focus or a purpose focus. Anything. It's a customer focus. We're just going to ask them what they want and then we're going to produce that cheaper than everyone else and everyone's fine, right? No, we're not fine. That's a transactional relationship. If you take someone like a Google or a Microsoft, same thing. That's a platform model. It requires them to look at us as a group, as a predictable group of human beings. The problem with that, and we need some of that, of course. We need some of that stability and predictability. We need to know that Zoom works when we click it, that email comes in. But that's a transactional relationship. That is not what's going to give you flow. That is not what's going to give you meaning and purpose. It's not going to challenge status quo. So now you have this, these giant behemoths that are working to preserve a status quo where they are relevant. And then that turns it into transactional relationship, which means that you now start to become part of that transaction. So now you're becoming transactional instead of the individual that you need to be. So the question then is, Okay, some of that is probably necessary, but it can't be the only thing. So what is the alternative? I would focus on that. I, I hate to bring this movie up, but would you say that's at all similar mm -hmm. to the Matrix blue pill, red pill? No. No? Okay. <laughs> I, I, would, I would not do that. But <laughs> okay. I, would go back to, I would go back to another question that you asked earlier, and that is whether or not um, actually, let's just skip that. 
let's keep going to the next one. I think I'm, I'm coming close to wrapping it up. I know that you're on a timeline. I mean, I do want to, some of these questions I've never asked any of my guests, but I'm just going to say this and then interpret it any way you want. Mm-hmm. I, I, my, I'm just listening to you and I've known you over the years and I think your, your, your brain goes very, like you are very deep. And I guess one of my questions, it feels like exhausting. Like what do you do to Mm -hmm. chill out? Like, it feels like if I had a brain like that and I went as deep on conversations, like you do go, Mm -hmm. like it would be tiring. And I guess, am I wrong or am I right? And if I am, how do you, how do you get present? And like, how do you get out of your head and into your heart? I know you like motorcycles, but like, how do you do that? Mm-hmm. Well, A, I do many different things. I think that's part of it. Uh, I don't think it's, I don't think about my life as exhausting because I try to go deep. I would argue for me that I feel like it is exhausting to be too casual or have conversations that are you know not about important things that to me is the exhausting part let me do my thing and let me take time to reflect deeply on things that's how i work best and i'm a very happy very happy customer so it's not about that do i relax of course i do i travel i do my things i try to stay in shape you do your yoga or whatever you it doesn't really matter but yes you do all of those things i have a cabin out in in the woods out in eastern washington great but i'm the happiest when i go deep and that goes back to the first thing you said you said even if i write about films it seems like i'm looking at these films so deeply it's sort of that it seems like your questions are begging a bigger question which is is it is all of this exhausting johan like can you just chill out and have a drink with me you know i can and let's do it i'm in let's have a stiff martini somewhere i'm i'm good with that but let's talk about things that matters. Let's not just chit chat about stuff. So that's that's me. So when I look at a film, when I make a film, but let's go back to these. When I look at a film, even if it's an entertainment film, I think some of my most interesting reviews uh, have been of films like The Last Top Gun, for example. Fascinating film. And you just you can look at something that is over here as a cultural phenomenon and it's fascinating i believe instead of saying it's it's exhausting or tiresome i'd say it's 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 incredibly interesting and deep and rich i love that i love that that's my reward yeah and i don't i don't look at you as exhausting and i i I just feel like you that's good to know by the way yeah i know i just think of you as very deep and very intelligent and then like sometimes it's hard to to change gears, but I get, mm-hmm. I get it. I don't like small talk. I was in a fraternity and, you know, mm-hmm. I get tired of that, you know, those conversations too. Um, let's see here. Um, one of the things I, I, I was just thinking about this is like, is it often, do you, do you acknowledge, like, do you ever be, I, I'm using that as an example, but how often are you like acknowledging your success? Like, are you proud? I know this sounds funny, but mm-hmm. are you proud of yourself or are you like, so driven like this is i mean is the journey giving you the joy uh, mm-hmm. or are you more destination oriented like when do you like take a deep breath and like god i did good that's a good question uh, i don't know exactly how to answer that i don't think i go you know johan good podcast let's just let's do a few more of those you know like i can do like no i that doesn't feel like me am i i'm not a process guy at all am i targeted or goal oriented only in the tactical sense i think but more a question for me of i am driven by the curiosity like if i I, it's that search that gets me going and gets me out of bed in the morning i need to know more about this i wonder what's on the other side when you start clawing at that what is that what does it look like what does it feel like how can we look at this are there other ways to look at this so a constant contrarian, a constant searcher. And if there's anything I'd like to leave this podcast with, 
and I and I say this as someone who's been in 15 different startups, who's someone who's made films, been writing, been doing consulting for half of my life, raised kids. It is not about the answers. The hard part is to ask the good questions. And if we stay with that, everyone has answers and the system will most certainly have answers that are self-serving. But the big thing is who comes up with the good questions? That's the guy you want to keep in the boardroom. That's the investor you want. That's the partner you want. Someone who sincerely is asking the good questions, that's what starts driving new narratives and new stories. And that's really where you, I think, where you want to be. That's my juice. I love it. You know, you've already answered some of the questions that I ask. And I'm going to just ask this one as we wind this down. And it's, you know, I have a feeling I know the answer, but if you could do anything, I mean, I feel like you're the type of guy that's, you'll do whatever you want to do, but is there a, a, another dream job out there like that you feel like is a new chapter or a, a new uh, quest for you? Or do you feel like you're in it right now? Like, is, is there something like in 10 years, I really would love to be doing this, or do you not even think like that? I, I don't think like that. As I said, it's the, it's the, it is the search and the curiosity that is my driver. And if anything, I hope that I'm doing deeper, better work and that my writing specifically will just start to dive deeper into the other side of things. And I can claw something back out from that that no one else can do. And that is probably a lifelong pursuit. Not a one task, but a of, it's an approach to it. I'll be digging. I'll be working when I'm 92. I'll be like those French directors. I'll wrap another scarf around my neck and go, all right, here we go. Everyone get naked. Let's shoot this scene. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> I love it. Um, I do ask this question. I, I'm, one thing is AI, and I don't know if you even give it much thought, but like I know AI is an interesting conversation right now as far mm -hmm. as replacing jobs or skill sets. Where does AI, like, do you, have you ever thought about AI in terms of film, like how it might change it or eliminate jobs? Mm -hmm. um, I, I think there's two questions. I think whether it eliminates jobs or not, I think is one, and, and I'll start with that one. I do think that I saw, I saw the early days when there was still denial at Microsoft that the internet was going to be a thing. I was there and I was on the front lines of going, this is, might actually be a thing, and what do we do with all of this? And that was before the, the powers that be had recognized that this was not gonna go away tomorrow. Um, I do believe the same thing is true, of course, with AI, it's already here. I think if you take something like a chat GTP 3.5 or a chat GTP 4, I believe that that will profoundly make a difference to how we do things. Now, I am less worried about chat GTP4 than I am about a Google business model where the search, so the core activity that we come to their browser or to their, to their site for to search things is not funded by them doing that right, but by advertising. So the decoupling of the revenue flow and the actual core service that they provide us, I think is what gives me much more heartburn than ChatGTP. What I like about ChatGTP, to take a positive spin on it, is it forces us to start asking good questions. You can't just go turkey population. It doesn't, that's not what you use. You have to come up with something that's of more interest. And again, this whole question goes back to how do we relate to that technology? It, do we put ourselves in a position where we allow ourselves to have them treat us like a transaction. Remember, we are the product, we don't pay for that. So clearly they get something back from us. Careful with that, because you really got to figure out what that is. Why well, you get their you know, attention, you buy stuff off of their ads, otherwise the model wouldn't work. That's a horrible model long-term. And it's also where they're starting to create their obsolescence. You take something like an Amazon, same thing, it's just a different model. They're, they're built on growth. That is not a, it's literally, per definition, not a sustainable model. Now, what's the alternative? Well, they are far from trying, they're far from trying and certainly far from figuring it out. 
So go back again, all of that is turning us into transactions of some sort, not as people or individuals, deep experiences, changing of status quo is the opposite of what they offer and what would they would prefer. So when I think about AI, I think more, it will happen, it's here. It's not, we're not debating whether or not we're gonna keep it, it will be here. But let's be smart about what our relationship is to it. Let's make sure that instead of treating it like a person, which is sort of the implicit nature of the, the um, we, we feel like it's the way it interacts in dialogue and conversation with this is like we interact with another person. There is an anthropomorphism in that that is, that is just inevitable. Let's think about that. That's not necessarily a healthy relationship because that thing can never reciprocate the humanity that we give it by offering up our dreams and our searches and our hopes and our patterns. It's not gonna give anything like that back. It gives us back something which comes from a server farm in a, in a dark barn in Nebraska that is another transaction. Now, the alternative, of course, is to look at it as a tool. You know, it's just a tool, Johan. All right, cool, it's just a hammer. The problem with that approach on the other side is, well, it is perhaps just a tool, but wait, because technology, and AI will always be part of every single layer of that, because of that, it, everything that we do when we explore the world, when we get to know each other, when we find new people, is now mediated by that same technology. So we can treat it like a tool and it will work better because we don't expect it to be another human being. So we're not disappointed, but it also is a very, um, it's, a, it's an approach that completely lacks ambition. I want tools that let me explore the world properly. I want tools that get me deeper. I wanna know more interesting people. And in that sense, I feel like we are choosing between AI as a tool or AI as a person, it's a false dichotomy. What we should do instead, look at it more as a, as a fictional relationship. We can have a character in a book take us places that we can never go to ourselves. And we are good with that. And that's a real deep, uh, complex journey that will surface up deeper, more complex feelings and experiences. I want that from technology, not a new body that, you know, that only that costs me all the time, which is technology, or another hammer. I don't need that to explore the world. I need all that smarts directed towards something else. That was a long-winded way to answer your AI question. I love it. I haven't heard that spin. I, I'll just leave it. What my, I feel like what we're doing is we're te- like I look at AI as a child. And they're learning from us, I feel like, on how to be human. I mean, I think that's what's going on right now. Um, and that's, you know, all the data. And, and, and that's what I feel like we're training them to be like us. But that's a, probably another podcast. Um, is there any question I didn't ask you along the lines of this podcast in terms of, you know, the why and the message that I didn't ask or anything that, that you want to end with that you feel compelled to say or do you feel pretty complete? No, I think, Dirk, I think we have covered 100%. I okay. think that was solid. <laughs> right. um, Thank Johan, you. I appreciate it very much. I, uh, I really do appreciate you coming on. Thank you for having me, Dirk. Thank you.